0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with ZenCaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about monogamy and infidelity. Most people who are in romantic relationships describe themselves as monogamous, and most singles say they're looking for a monogamous relationship but many people seem to have a hard time actually staying monogamous. In part, this is because a lot of people just assume monogamy in their relationship without ever discussing it, but it's also because a lot of the strategies people use to maintain monogamy don't seem to work all that well. We're going to discuss what we know about what does and doesn't work when it comes to maintaining monogamy. We're also going to talk about the psychology of crushes and what happens when someone in a monogamous relationship develops a crush on someone who isn't their partner. When is this harmless and when does it become a potential threat to the relationship? My guest today is Dr. Lucia O'Sullivan. She is a professor of psychology at the University of New Brunswick in Canada who studies sexual behavior in intimate relationships. She has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles in scientific journals and is the associate editor for the Journal of Sex Research. She has a wonderful blog on Psychology Today titled, At First Blush, as well as a website called Sex Meets Relationships that presents her lab's research. I'm really excited for this conversation, and we're going to dive right in after this short break.
1: Hi, I'm Venus, host of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast and founder of Venus Connections. This message is for all of the beautiful, single, sex-positive women listening to this episode. What if I told you, you could have a loving, adoring, and faithful partner, and have exciting and thrilling encounters with others, but he loves it that way. In fact, you both love it that way. This kind of relationship is all about celebrating you. You can have that. You can have it all. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. It's matchmaking for loving, cuckolding relationships.
0: Hi, Lucia, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I am so looking forward to discussing your research. But before we dive into that, can you please tell us a little bit about your backstory? So specifically, how did you come to study sex and relationships in the first place? What is it that drew you to this area?
2: Well, like many sex researchers, I feel sometimes that it was an accidental series of events that brought me to the field i i didn't grow up thinking you know what i'm going to be a sex researcher (laughs) in fact i grew up in a very english family and uh in many ways you know we were uh, as inhibited as the stereotype goes but i had the great fortune of meeting Sandra byers my mentor lifelong mentor really At a young age when I was completing my final year requirements for a psychology degree and she has always studied sex and relationships and drew me into the field and I have to say it's been such a fun ride although as an outlaw of science in many respects it has been a difficult career to navigate A few points. Uh, My career has come to some screeching halts, and I've had to sort of pivot this way or that to keep it going. But having said that, it's it's actually been great. I've been able to follow my passion and answer all sorts of questions that I find really intriguing, and I get paid to do that, which is awesome.
0: (laughs) It's pretty nice, right, to get paid to do what you love. Since you said you grew up in an English family, did you kind of grow up with that Victorian mindset of like? sex, like you just close your eyes and think of England like it's a duty for the country as opposed to a pursuit for personal pleasure?
2: Well, I, I'm doing my family uh, injustice, I think, because my parents are actually quite uh, continental in their approach to these things. But I think just growing up in the family, the broader family I had, yes, it was it's not something we talked about freely. And Um, And in fact, I don't know many people who grew up in a household where anything goes kind of thing. My parents actually were pretty good on that front. So that gave me the foundation to be able to talk about it and feel comfortable once things got rolling, I suppose.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Now, you mentioned that in your journey, you found that your career has come to screeching halts sometimes. Is that because of, say, difficulties in getting funding to do sex research? Or just what are some of the issues that you've run into as a sex researcher that have made your work challenging?
2: Well, once I completed my doctorate, surprisingly, psychology departments weren't screaming to hire somebody with a background in sex research. They wanted like the classic psychologist with studying social cognition or attitudes and, you know, group processes and things like that, which, of course, I didn't have uh, a strictly classic psychology background. I mean, you just had to look at my, my CV to see that I had been studying <laughs> something quite different. So I found that tricky but i seem to fall on my feet very quickly and it helped in some ways that when you study sex and sex relationships it helps in other realms so for instance My transition to professional life co-occurred with the HIV pandemic. And of course, at the time, there was no medicalizing out of that pandemic. They needed people who knew and understood sexual behavior. So there was my opportunity, golden as it was, and terrible circumstances, but ideal for me to make a contribution, I felt. And things got rolling again in that regard. So that, that was fortunate. And I feel like the funding, when I've worked for many, many years in the United States and many, many years in Canada now, and when I was in the United States, most of our major funding came from NIH, as it still does. But at the time, we weren't even allowed to use the word condom in any kind of research that we were proposing as part of the Bush era (laughs) policies about these things. And so it was incredibly difficult. There was so little funding. There was like a 6% funding rate, and it went to all the big wigs who had these 20 year kind of longitudinal studies. I moved to Canada, proposed some outrageous. Projects, you know, by contrast. And the Canadian government was like, yes, please, you know. And it was such (laughs) a stark contrast, Justin. I can't even begin to tell you how exciting it was to feel like, oh, there's people out there who think the same crazy ideas are interesting, too.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think you said a lot of important things. One is that oftentimes, even our professional colleagues in psychology don't respect and value the work that we do as sex researchers because they see studying sex or sex education is sort of a trivial pursuit and not a real science. And sometimes it's not until something really bad happens, like um, it, an infectious disease outbreak that people actually start to take the work seriously and recognize the importance and value of it. But then there's also that whole cross-cultural component where, yes, it is really difficult to get funding to study sex in the U.S. I mean, the fact that you couldn't even say the word condom. In HIV research. Yeah, yeah. like, uh, how can you do HIV research without talking about condoms, for example? But mm. anyway, we could do a whole episode on just the, the challenges and struggles of, of being a sex researcher. But I really want to dive into your work because I think it's fascinating. So let's talk about monogamy. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you look at public opinion polls and surveys, the vast majority of people say that they want to be monogamous. And if you ask people who are currently in relationships to describe them, most people say that they're monogamous. However, in practice, people aren't all that great at maintaining monogamy, as evidenced by consistently high rates of cheating and infidelity that we also see on these surveys. Now, before we get into how people maintain monogamy and why it's so challenging, let me step back and ask you what it even means to be monogamous in the first place. So how do people define the term monogamy, and does it mean different things to different people?
2: Oh, it definitely does. And I started in the study of infidelity with my graduate student at the time and a researcher I know you know well, Ashley Thompson. And she was always pushing me to let's study infidelity. And I thought, oh, there's no way we can really study that well because people aren't honest. And it's one of those socially stigmatized behaviors that it's really tricky. But with online anonymous surveys and all the ways you can get around the demand characteristics that the topic introduces, we really began to study that. So infidelity, we learned quickly, meant many different things to people. And not only was it not usually confined to a definition of genital contact in some way with someone who's outside of your typically, your typical dyad, usually that's the monogamy concept is that it involves two people with an agreement to exclusivity. But we realized that when we really examine that more closely. It wasn't just sex that people found constituted cheating or being unfaithful in the sort of lay terms or infidelity, but also different forms of romantic involvement with someone who's not your partner. So sharing private information, spending time together alone, as well as often internet-based activities. And even for some people, Masturbation. So we were surprised by this, but we realized that what people were talking about and what they think includes infidelity is really getting aroused by the idea or interaction with someone who's not me, you know, not my partner exactly. Mm And so we looked at that further, we realized that not only do people not discuss what their agreement is in the first place, making it kind of a moving target, you know, am I cheating or am I not, but that people have way more permissive definitions of infidelity when it applies to themselves, much more forgiving of violations (laughs) of things that they do rather than their partner. But also we realized that it's not the study of infidelity that's going to be so important it's going to be the study of monogamy like who manages to get it right all the time because it's a bit like studying teen pregnancy we used to always look at okay you know who's getting pregnant as a teen what are the predictors but then there's a the vast majority who don't get pregnant as a teen you know all those young women who don't get pregnant what makes a person successful? So if monogamy is a goal in a relationship, and of course, I know you've talked before on, on this about consensual forms of non-monogamy. But if people really do have that goal to be exclusive, we were wondering, what is it that can make that go well?
0: Yeah. And I think that that's an important way to to frame this because there's a ton of research on infidelity and so much of it does focus on those who are committing acts of cheating or infidelity but you know what makes a relationship work how do people actually maintain monogamy now as you mentioned a lot of people seem to enter relationships just sort of assuming that by virtue of being in a relationship it's going to be monogamous and in many ways i can understand this because if i think back to my own early relationships in my life before i became a sex researcher and ever started thinking about this stuff that's totally how i approached relationships you know i never recognized at that point in my life that there was another model or that there were things that you needed to discuss and establish here. So tell us a little bit about why assumed monogamy is problematic and how that sets the stage for relationship problems later on.
2: Well, this is where I've been really wallowing lately because we started with the premise that people are surrounded by attractive others. You may be in a committed relationship. You may even have some spoken or unspoken agreement to be exclusive, but you're spending most of your waking hours away from your partner, typically, at least pre-pandemic. And that means you are constantly, in a sense, having to negotiate attraction. If you think of attraction really like a magnet being drawn towards someone, like it or not, you know, even people you really like a lot as friends, you're sort of attracted to certain people How do you manage that when you really do have a goal of maintaining exclusivity? So we wanted to know how do people in committed relationships handle their exposure essentially to attractive others? And I've been working on this with a researcher, one of my grad students, Charlene Baylou, in some depth, and also Brenda Lee, another grad student. And we found that there are three primary strategies that people who are successful at monogamy over time seem to engage in. And the first is that they really focus on their partner. They sort of think, oh, you know, my partner is so wonderful and this is why they are. And you know, they set up a a couple time and they really reinvest in the relationship. Another strategy that's very successful is that they focus on the attractive other and find things about them that are really kind of obnoxious or (laughs) negative in some way. Oh, you know, the shape of their fingertips are square. I hate that. Or, you know, they have that weird way of, I don't know, drooling saliva out of the corner of the mouth, whatever it could be, anything at all. But focusing and exaggerating that negative aspect And then the third, which is probably the strategy that most people are thinking of when they think of how we self-correct is to chastise oneself, to make oneself feel guilty and really think about what disaster would follow if you were really drawn to this person or you had some kind of connection with them, sexual, romantic or combination and all that you would lose. And we do find that the people who use these strategies, particularly if they use them frequently, are more likely to stay the course. And I suppose this is a good place to add that it's hard to do that. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people (laughs) are sort of, and that's actually where our crush research comes in. A lot of people love the idea of finding people attractive other than their partner, like to sort of, enjoy that their personal trainer is gorgeous, or the or the guy at the coffee shop who remembers your name and exactly what you like, or whatever the case may be, that having these people in our lives gives us a little spark, you know, sort of a reason to make a little more effort, or just a nice little flirty exchange can can just add a little color, fun. And for the most part, they are harmless, but until they're not right and that's where things start to tumble is that attraction to another person can be super harmless and fun and entertaining a you know source for fantasy even for people who want to maintain monogamy but there are conditions where things can go very wrong
0: yeah yeah and we're going to come back to the the crushes more in a little bit, but you told us about some of the strategies that work for maintaining monogamy, but they're difficult and not everybody does them. So what are some of the strategies people do that don't work? You know, what are the ineffective strategies for maintaining monogamy?
2: Well, definitely spending time with that attractive other. And we, we think of it as tripwires to infidelity. So, um, people who are successful are able to maintain that distance and people who are not get ever drawn into the chemistry of that attraction and i think it boils down to that and i know you may think well of course that makes sense but when we when we have these attractions and they are used for fun or entertainment and we're maybe reluctant to give them up we often i think deny that they are posing any kind of problem to the quality of a primary relationship. And it can lead to devaluing of the primary relationship. So unsuccessful strategies include primarily spending time together, finding a way to spend time together. But the second is communicating your attraction to that person. It's one thing Mm to have a crush from afar, but it's quite another to actually communicate it because to communicate it to that person is opening that door. That's another mm-hmm. tripwire. So it's possible at that point to find out, and maybe that's the goal do they also find you attractive? And then once that's explicit in some form, things can accelerate in a way that you may not have meant. And the yeah. trick, I think, for people who are prone to straying when they don't want to stray is to recognize a couple of steps before where they need to back off Mm -hmm. before they get emotionally or otherwise entangled.
0: Yeah. Now, it's interesting when you were talking about spending time with that attractive other i'm also thinking you know we're both social psychologists so i'm thinking about the social comparison effect because when you're with this person who's new and you've got that like very intense magnetic attraction to that other person and maybe you've been with your primary partner for a really long time and the passion has sort of dwindled but you're feeling this really intense passion for this other person and attraction to them and your long-term partner has all these things that they do that annoy you right that you know, in the beginning of the relationship, they weren't annoying, but they became annoying over time, like the way that person chews, for example, or you snores. know, their their hobbies, yeah, snores, all that kind of stuff, right? So then there becomes this contrast effect where it seems like, Oh, I feel that really intense passion for this person, and they don't do these things that annoy me. And so then that can further push them you know, toward the root of exiting the relationship or committing infidelity. And I think it's really important to have that reality check of, okay, well, you know, if you leave this relationship and start a new relationship with someone else, eventually all of those same problems are going to emerge again, right? Because the passion is going to die down to some degree. They're ultimately going to do things that annoy you. But I think we have a tendency to not think about those things in the moment because we get so consumed and caught up in those passionate feelings.
2: Right. And I have this theory, and I really should test it. But I think a key component of this issue that you just brought up is also the secrecy Yeah. and great misattribution of arousal. But secrets, of course, stress us out. And and especially if someone says, oh, keep the secret, or you're trying to keep something on the down low – People, I think, confuse the stress of keeping something secret with passion because it all feels the same. It's all stomach clenching, heart racing, blood pressure zooming, (laughs) you know, all the factors are exactly the same for emotional response. But often you read about where people have a, a relationship on the down low in some form. Once it's exposed, they're a little surprised about how it loses some of its shine. And that's exactly the point that you have just brought up, which is how it's easy to find someone new, the novelty and the excitement around someone new. And it does create that stark contrast to the old, the tried, the true, because, you know, you know what to expect and it does it does feel like you, you know, it's easy to habituate, I think, to someone unless you work hard to keep it fresh.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the topic of secrecy. Actually, my doctoral dissertation was on secrecy in relationships. And I focus primarily on secrecy in the context of an ongoing long-term relationship. So you're keeping the primary relationship Secret. And what I find there is that that tends to be very stressful. It has negative implications for the relationship itself and also for the physical and psychological health and well being of the partners involved because it is inherently stressful. I even did a longitudinal component to that work and found that people who were keeping their relationship secret were more likely to have broken up after a year compared to people who didn't keep it secret. But when we're talking about secrecy in the context of a crush or in the context of infidelity, that's different. And I think you're right that that can potentially amplify the intensity and excitement because maybe there's that misattribution of arousal or this excitation transfer because you're kind of already in that heightened state of arousal and so that amplifies the other feelings and emotions that you have in that moment and there is a set of studies conducted by Dan Wagner at Harvard I think this was in the 80s or 90s where he had college student participants come in and they played secret footsie with one another in a lab so these were male female heterosexual pairs and they were sitting on opposite sides of the table and you know some of them were told to play footsie and some of them were told to play footsie and keep it secret. And what they found was that the ones who had to play secret footsie were more intensely attracted to their their lab partner, which I think supports this idea that, you know, secrecy can sort of fuel that excitement in some of these limited contexts. But it's a very different thing when you're in a long-term relationship and you're hiding that from your family and friends and so forth. But yeah, yeah secrecy is fascinating.
2: I think so, too. I do remember reading your research from that dissertation, and and a key part of that was the social support aspect that they kind of get, wasn't it? Which, of course, is true for a relationship that you have to keep hidden. The stigma of having an extra dyadic relationship in an uh, otherwise ostensibly monogamous setup is one where nobody's going to be excited for you, typically, uh, unless they all hate your primary partner. (laughs)
0: Yes. So let me ask you this. Based on your your research in this area, do you think that there are any sort of concrete tips or takeaways that people can use to try and cheat proof their relationship to some degree? Now, I don't think anyone can ever guarantee that infidelity will never arise because we never know what the future is going to be. But what would be sort of your top tips or takeaways about what you can do to reduce the risk of infidelity in a relationship?
2: I think there would be three three top tips. First is you talk to your partner about what they consider the boundaries. So if you have a partner who's fine if you made out drunkenly at a party and that's no big deal, great. But if you have a partner who would be hugely offended and feel like you have misbehaved if you, you know, even masturbated to porn that's something else so figuring out those where your overlap is is good for boundaries I think the second is to be honest with ourselves about our attractions to others that the rules for ourselves and what we hold for our partners are often different and that if it's not okay for your partner it shouldn't ideally be okay for you either so that's important. And then I think a third one is to kind of just chill out about the whole thing because part of the problem is we make these violations of exclusivity that's that's just you know the way we've been operationalizing it but it's not but we make infidelity to be such a deal breaker. And yet attraction doesn't get switched off just because you're in a relationship. So I think it's important to acknowledge that your whole life long, you're going to find people who want your partner attractive and possibly find those people, some of those people, even you know, a potentially better partner than yours. But it's it's recognizing the points you made earlier about all you've invested in your relationship, your time, your interests, all the things you've done, your networks and so on, Even taking into account the costs or the rewards, you know, the annoying habit, that new relationship, if you're going to jump ship, is going to look very similar after that six to 12 month window of passion passes (laughs) and think of all you can lose in that process. So, yeah, I think that's those are the, the top three tips for getting this right.
0: Yeah, I think those are all great and really helpful. And we would all benefit no matter what our relationship structure or orientation is, or what we want from our romantic lives, we would all do better to communicate more about these rules and boundaries and what fidelity means to your partner, what monogamy or exclusivity mean. And, you know, I'm also thinking of some other research I've seen on, you know, how people define infidelity. And one of the things that always stands out to me from the study I'm thinking of was that there was a significant number of people who said that if your partner loaned somebody else or or gave somebody else five dollars they would consider that to be infidelity and to me initially that sort of blew my mind I'm like that's You know, for most people, probably a relatively small amount of money, but it also factors in this idea of sort of financial fidelity to your partner and what you're spending money on and how that can become a form of infidelity as well. So it's sort of the physical infidelity, the emotional part, the financial piece, right? And so having a discussion about all of those things, I think, is really important.
2: I agree. It does make us think that the burden on our primary relationships and these glorified beasts that they become <laughs> is, you know, pretty notable that they have to meet all these needs and do it so well. And and yet we find it threatening to bring up any of these things. You know, we're very bad at talking about them as if, you know, it's going to mean the unraveling of our relationship if we find that I'm tolerant of this, but you are not,
0: you know. Yep. And hence the need for better relationship education. Now we have much more to discuss, including more about the psychology of crushes and what happens when people in monogamous relationships develop a crush on somebody else. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you're running a podcast, you need the most reliable and high quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use and produces consistently great results. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, sexandpsych, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z E N C A S T R.com. Want to give your intimate life a boost? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. Promescent also has a female arousal gel, lubricants, supplements, and so much more promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee free shipping on orders over ten dollars and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy learn more and place your order at promescent.com that's p-r-o-m-e-s-c-e-n-t.com and we're back my guest today is sex researcher dr lucia o'sullivan So let's talk a little bit more about crushes. So you published a paper recently looking at people in relationships who develop crushes on somebody who isn't their primary partner. And it suggests that, you know, this is a pretty common experience. But let's talk a little bit more about the impact of this on the individual and on the relationship. So, you know, what's sort of your take about when people develop a crush on somebody else or when they're fantasizing about somebody else who isn't their partner because there are so many people out there who look at these behaviors and necessarily assume that it means there's something wrong in the relationship and that they shouldn't find anybody else attractive they shouldn't fantasize about anyone else other than them because they think that that means there's there's this problem area so what would you say to people who are? Concerned about this, and who view this idea of if you develop a crush on someone else, if you fantasize about somebody else, that there's fundamentally a problem in the relationship.
2: It's been a question I've wanted to study for a long time, and in part because I, I I think I always have a crush on somebody, Um, Mm -hmm. usually more than one person, and yet we tend to think of crushes as something that's the you know, in the world of childhood or early teens, before anyone has the confidence to really enter an intimate relationship. And that just made me feel like a little schoolgirl all the time. And I thought, what is it? But when I talked to other people, I realized, no, you know, everyone has somebody who draws their attention in some way. Uh, well not everybody, but we do find that the majority of people report having these, and what in our first study of this, we absolutely found that they were mostly harmless they were for entertainment, they were just something to think about, a little spark to the day, like I mentioned earlier for sure, but with um Charlene Bayou, we've been looking now we've we did a longitudinal study. And we have been analyzing all the variables relating to what predicts a breakup and or infidelity. And for the most part, all is still good. You can have attractions to others, even if you're in a committed relationship. And it doesn't interfere with the relationship quality itself. So your relationship satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, your investment, your even your perception of alternatives, they're still solid, you still remain committed, all is well. It doesn't typically predict a breakup and and it seemed pretty solid. However, we did find that Over time, if that attraction intensifies in some way, then it predicts the degradation of the relationship, the primary relationship. And we actually didn't find a lot of people in our one year study had a lot of uh, there weren't many cases of infidelity, so we could we couldn't look at it in quite the breakdown. But we do know that the primary aspect for measurement is the attraction intensity. And when that starts going up, 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 things are going to get bad, bad, bad. And so maintaining a moderate level of attraction, keeping (laughs) it from afar, not communicating that attraction to the person, maybe a little flirting, but nothing too explicit, that seems fine until it's not.
0: Yeah. So I agree. It's totally normal for people to develop crushes and to experience attraction to others when they're in any kind of relationship, whether it's monogamous or consensually non-monogamous. And this happens for many reasons. You know, one is that human beings seem to be wired to be turned on by novelty and also to seek self-expansion. And when our sex lives and relationships become very routine, we become bored pretty easily because that need for novelty is going unmet. However, there's also the fact that we and our partners change over time and as we age we sort of become different people because we can experience shifts in our personality and in our psychological needs which means that a given partner or relationship structure that worked really well for you at one point might not work quite as well later in time if the relationship stays the same and doesn't evolve or change along with you and that can prompt us to start looking outward and you know that's i think where some of this danger comes in where if you've changed but your relationship hasn't and then you meet this other person and they seem really exciting and <laughs> they don't seem to have all of this baggage that your long-term relationship currently has, you know, that then becomes this, this sort of tempting alternative, but something I've been thinking about and I'm curious about in our discussion of all of this is, do you think some people just generally are better at maintaining monogamy than others and, you know, avoiding putting themselves in those situations where temptation can set in? So for example, are there certain personality traits or characteristics that might be important here?
2: I do. I, I think that there are three different types, it seems, and this actually comes from Roddy Miller's work, but he did nothing with it. And we've sort of incorporated it into ours and finding it's very helpful. There's the the willfully disinterested, the people who they have blinders on, they don't, even though they're working late at night with someone incredibly attractive, <laughs> by all standards, they just Don't acknowledge, don't let it enter the consciousness. There's the passive-aware folk who seem to be the crushers, the ones who are good at sort of leaning back and going yum, but not (laughs) going forward on that front and keeping it pretty healthy and fine, adding the novelty without wallowing in it. But then there are the active prowlers, the people who – are in a relationship, but forever are looking for the next great thing. And these are the people we find are jumping ship. They're the mate poachers. They get poached from other people, by other people to new relationships. Their overlap in relationships it's not serial monogamy. It's you know, a notable overlap from the end of one to the beginning of the other. And they they tend to be the minority. But they're the serial kind of infidelity folk and the active prowlers are always aware of who's attractive in the room and they always approach, you know, those people you've gone to parties and that person is like, you feel like they have sussed out exactly who's the most attractive and they are hitting on, they're annoying. (laughs) <laughs> but they they can't keep a relationship going for the life of them. But I think most people are in the passive awareness group from what we can tell. That they appreciate and they can acknowledge, but it doesn't threaten their relationship for the most part.
0: Yeah, so watch out for the active prowlers. <laughs> now, I'm I'm thinking about active prowlers and like maybe what are some of the traits and characteristics that go along with that and some of the things that come to mind might be that they're higher in sensation seeking tendencies and so maybe they just have this generalized need for more excitement and might find infidelity or mate poaching to be this thing that that creates that level of excitement that they need it could also be that you know maybe there are also differences in their sexuality and i'm thinking about my episode with emily nagoski where we talked about spontaneous desire and responsive desire and how you know some people just have that desire that hits them like a brick and so maybe these are people who just kind of perpetually are always experiencing those higher levels of desire and so maybe for somebody who is more responsive in terms of when desire sets in maybe that makes it less likely that you'll be susceptible to temptation and so forth because the conditions aren't quite right for that to happen so i think there could be a lot of different factors at play here in terms of you know who's more likely to stay faithful and committed to their partner versus who is likely to cheat and leave but i'm glad you brought up that subject of mate poaching because you know in our discussion so far we've sort of been talking about people in a relationship where one of them is kind of looking outward and that sort of seems to suggest that infidelity emanates from within the relationship when it happens but you also have these mate poachers which are people who are going in and intentionally trying to break up another couple, right? Because they want one of the partners for themselves. So there's this external person who can be coming in and, and breaking up the relationship. So what happens, I know you've done some research on mate poaching, what happens when people poach a partner from another relationship? Is that likely to form the basis for a healthy relationship for them?
2: Ooh, drumroll please. No. <laughs> <laughs> we do find that relationships started by mate poaching by one or both are of lower relationship quality overall when we measure it with all the traditional indices of investment and commitment and satisfaction and and so on with one interesting caveat which is serial mate poachers have notably poorer relationships as you might expect and they're they are likely the active prowlers always shifting always changing but for some people we found that they were in an established relationship and they were poached or a poacher. They found that one person who made all the difference. So not every relationship is meant to be, you might be in an established relationship, but truly find someone who moves you, you know, changes your life is your one true love to use a very stereotyped romantic (laughs) script. But we found that those who had a history of just once having mate poached or being poached didn't have a poorer relationship quality and actually had Mm. comparably, you know, fairly good ones. So there are definitely circumstances to a mate poaching scenario that aren't necessarily bad, but once it's a serial habit of shifting, shifting, then we do find they're poorer. But To go back to an earlier point you said and i think it fits in here is that some relationships have a natural time course it it shouldn't necessarily be the goal to make every relationship last forever because perhaps like you said people grow apart they have new interests something happens to interrupt the health and quality of that relationship and finding someone new is not also an awful thing sometimes that can be very life enhancing and and make all the difference in the world provide that pivot point in your relationship career so to speak that is absolutely essential and I think that we have we still have the sort of residual guilt about relationships ending when really sometimes them they should Mm -hmm. and I think that that's that's quite okay. But the premature demise of a good relationship is something else, of course.
0: Yeah, I think you raise a lot of really important points there. We have this tendency to think that relationship quantity or the duration of a relationship is the real measure of success. And, you know, I hear this from people all the time, because when they hear that somebody in, say, a multi-decade relationship breaks up, they're like, why you know you've invested so much in that relationship and that's just sad and terrible and awful but you're right it might be the right thing for the partners at that point in time and you know it's also worth recognizing that sometimes really short-term relationships that you have can be extraordinarily meaningful and can have this profound impact on you for the rest of your life and change you in a lot of important ways. And so I think it's really important to get away from this idea that the length of the relationship is the ultimate measure of the quality of it. right? And we need to look at so much more than just that.
2: I think so too. Yeah.
0: Now we're running short on time, but there's one other thing I want to get into with you quickly, which is that you've done some research on sex education around the world Now, in previous episodes of this show, I've talked about sex ed in the United States and in the Netherlands, but you've explored sex ed in Canada and India in some of your research. So can you just give us a brief glimpse or insight into how sex ed works in these other countries and what people's attitudes and feelings are towards sex ed?
2: Yeah, sure. If you already know the UK and the US, you know the UK is sort of a mini model of the US in terms of emphasis on abstinence and how to prevent pain shame you know all those factors and canada is much more of a very much like western european so their emphasis is on comprehensive sex ed which is great and very much incorporating the positive aspects of sexuality and relationships so relationship education is weaving its way in as is pleasure and well-being and those components as well. And so that has been nice for sure. There's variation across the country. It's a huge country, of course. And the usual pattern emerges where you get a very small but vocal group that thinks that anything short of education about sex in a marital context is wrong, emerges here as it does everywhere. India is an interesting story in that the national government really instituted this plan to have this very comprehensive, state-of-the-art sex education to address the abysmal adolescent sexual health record where young people often married at a young age. Boys will celebrate with sex workers, but it is related to disease often, STIs, and girls are often denied access to healthcare. And if they are not reproducing, their value has uh, is decreased in some contexts. Really high rates of STIs and adolescent pregnancy and marriage and so on. So we had this incredible state of the science curriculum not instituted at the state level. And again, no data to indicate why. So we looked at, were people supportive of a comprehensive sex education program? This is the evidence, right? You don't want that vocal minority to determine the sex education of everyone in the world. And uh, just like everywhere else that we study, the majority were absolutely in support of a comprehensive sex education, which was great news. They wanted it somewhat later than we would love, but they wanted pretty much the whole gamut of topics to be covered in full. So that was really excellent news for us. Mm-hmm. And we're working toward you know making some more gains in that front.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you talk about that because it makes me think of some research I've seen here in the U.S., which, you know, despite the fact that sex ed has become politicized and, you know, you tend to see Republican administrations pushing for more abstinence-based funding and Democratic politicians pushing for more comprehensive sex ed. If you survey American adults across the political divide, for the most part, Democrat, Republican, Independent, they're on the same page. You know, the vast majority want comprehensive sex education, but there is that vocal minority that says, no, sex should only take place within marriage and people need to wait and so forth. And it's become you know, very complex to try and implement these comprehensive programs, which we know work. And it's just sad in a lot of ways that there is that widespread public support, but we seem to run into so many roadblocks when it comes to actually implementing new sex ed programs. And so it's just a it's a really fraught area and a really frustrating area for sex educators because we know what programs work. We've got the evidence and we've got the data. It's just so hard to actually implement them and and seek change.
2: Yeah. But I take some comfort in the fact that we are overall progressively moving toward more comprehensive education generally, mostly not so backward as we were going a few decades ago. And that there are so many sources, some of them very good, particularly on the Internet, some of them awful, but other ways to get people educated that proving worthwhile options. So it's good. We don't just have to rely on schools and parents anymore, both of whom were doing a mediocre to awful job.
0: Yeah. And hey, when I was a kid, pretty much all I had was this dusty set of encyclopedias in my parents' basement. So had I had access to the internet, I might have gotten some better information. Might have also gotten some terrible information too. But anyway, it is good that there are more options and we're making baby steps toward comprehensive sex education. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lucia. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
2: Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, the website and psychology today blog. So in at first blush and the website sex meets relationships, but also email at the University of New Brunswick. Easy to find.
0: Yes. And I also found that many of your papers are easily available to access online. So if you want to do a deeper dive into the science of crushes and monogamy maintenance, you can find a lot of that information pretty readily. But if you can't, lucia will definitely help connect you so thank you again for your time thank you i really appreciate having you here also thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast which was made on zencaster visit my website sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where i hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show you can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates i'm on twitter at justin LayMiller miller and instagram at justin j LayMiller. miller also be sure to check out my book tell me what you want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.